Uh, we're continuing in Psalms, of course, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 95 tonight. And I was really inspired to teach this psalm. Pastor Michael had actually asked me if I wanted to teach, and he said, pick any psalm between 94 and 96, whichever one you want. <laughs> and no, I'm kidding. Um, on our last Family Sunday on January 31st, we had the opportunity to come together and worship as one service. How many of you guys were here for that in this building? It was so cool to see this building packed out, like I've never seen it in the last year or so now because of COVID. And the time of worship was just so powerful. And it was a reminder to me of how important it is uh, in our lives. More importantly, how important it is just for us to worship God because of who he is. And so as I was reading through a few different Psalms, I, I landed on this one. And, and I hope that this Psalm tonight will minister to you guys as much as it did to me. I will warn you that there might be a little bit of a, a challenge and a little bit of uh, some exhortation here towards you. And again, know that that first went through my mind and my heart over this last week as I prepared that. And so this psalm is uh, part of a collection of psalms that's sometimes called the enthronement psalms or the royal psalms. And these are psalms that, as a, a key theme, uh, they exalt God as a king. And they do so with a sense of gratitude for who he is. And this psalm particularly is actually the start of a psalm, a string of psalms, 95 to 99. They're actually traditionally sung on the Sabbath. So every Friday night, um, Jewish people from around the world would actually sing through this psalm. And I think it's important to remember that these are songs, right? Sometimes we can forget that. I know we've heard it, but sometimes we forget it. These are songs that are meant to be sung. And when we sing songs, probably the youth can attest to this, um, and I, I can remember singing songs in school, and they help you remember things better, right? I have songs that I can remember from kindergarten that I know the words for. I don't know why. It's like I can't delete the file out of my brain. It's just there permanently because it's done to a tune and to a song. And so I want us to keep in mind again that these are songs are meant to be sung. They're also meant to be studied, of course, right? We know that this entire uh, word of God is meant to be studied. Um, we know from Scripture that 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that's really um, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take that to heart. And the purpose of Scripture is for our instruction, we're told in Romans as well. So we're going to read through this psalm tonight, and I'm going to ask you to please stand, if you would. We're going to read through Psalm 95 in its entirety, just 11 verses. It says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Lord, as we come before you now and we uh, dig deep into this psalm, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me tonight, Lord. I pray that your words would minister to the hearts of your people. I pray that we would take new things away from this text, Lord. I pray that it would transform us that we would truly be changed and not merely hearers of the word, but that we would become doers of the word, Lord, as you have commanded us, God. So be with us now. Send your spirit to help us uh, to understand what you would say to your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the psalm, as you can see, is divided into two sections. Uh, verses 1 to 6 
are really this uh, exhortation to worship and various forms of worship, and we'll kind of dig through those. And then verses 8 through 11 are actually a warning that's given to the worshipers. Right in the middle, verse 7 kind of serves as a bridge, and it links these two together. And what's interesting is this, the, the psalmist, we don't know exactly who wrote this song. Uh, some believe it's David, but there's not entire clarity on that. It switches from the psalmist speaking in verses 1 through 8, and then in verse 9, we see God actually speaking directly to the people. Now, I didn't really want to give you a kind of a stereotypical three-point sermon, right? Usually pastors kind of do that. It's kind of a three-point sermon. But as I was reading through this, I found, guess how many different sections? Three. So I didn't intend to do this, but I believe that this is what the Lord has for us. So let's dive into this tonight. And we're going to read the first two verses again that say, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now, most of you guys are probably familiar with church and religion and, you know, how things go in a church service. And most of you are familiar with the fact that at the beginning of most services, we have what on stage? Worship. We have worship. We have a time of worship. And there's no accident to that. There's a reason that we have that. It's, it's purposeful. It's a time of song and celebration. It, it helps us to kind of clear our mind and to get the focus off of ourselves and to focus on the Lord, to prepare our hearts. It's a way that we learn really to come before him. But I think a lot of times as Christians, we confuse the word worship with what happens on stage here with Pastor Shane and maybe the band, whether it's on a Wednesday or on a Sunday, we think that is worship. I think it's important to know that that is a type of worship, yes, but that's not the entirety of worship. We know that there's many different ways that we can worship, many different styles, many different forms. And that's why we call this worship music more specifically, right? There's different types of music. Some of you guys like to listen to jazz music or classical music. We have worship music to denote the fact that its sole purpose is to worship God. And so we can worship really in a variety of ways, but most importantly, our whole lives should be lived as a form of worship. Not just here on a stage or, or you guys here, you know, in the pews, in the congregation. Our whole life is worship. Uh, Romans 12 tells us that we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. doesn't say anything about songs or singing or making noise. Our whole lives are supposed to be about worship. We know that also in John 4, Jesus is talking with the woman at the well in Samaria, and she says, you know, our, our fathers worshipped here on this mountain in, in Samaria, but you say that the Lord should be worshipped in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus responds, we have the verse right there up on the wall to your left, John 4, 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so I want us to to start with this idea that worship is not contained in a little box, okay? This, this isn't worship, what happened before I came up here on this, take that back. That is worship. That is one form of worship that took place before I came up here. But again, our whole lives are worship. What we do in our jobs, if you work out in a job in the secular world, what you do for work is a form of worship if you're doing it unto the Lord, right? We're supposed to do all things unto the Lord. How about our serving here, maybe at church on a Wednesday night? We have um, people working with youth. They're down here tonight, but usually they're upstairs. We have children that are upstairs. We have teachers. People serve on a Sunday in a variety of capacities, ushers, greeters, so many different things happening. That service is also a form of worship. Our giving, we know, is a form of worship as well. When we give of our finances, if it's done with the right heart and the right intent, it's a form of worship. And so we're going to look at three forms of worship tonight that are prescribed to us in this psalm. The first one we're going to take a look at is singing. The first words read, Oh, come. It's an invitation. The psalm is written inviting. It's, it's actually in the plural form. So it's inviting everyone to come and worship. It's not specific towards one or two people. It is a plural. Everyone, come and worship. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. 
So let's sing together. This is kind of this idea of congregational worship. When we come in here together, it was so beautiful when Shane said, hey, you know, let's, we're going to worship. It's going to be just the voices. And he backed off the guitar. He backed off his voice. And to hear all of us worship together was something beautiful. Was it not? I know not all of us sing in the right tune. Shane will probably be the first to let you know that. Right? Some of us can't carry a tune. Some of us can't sing. I can't. I'll tell you. You probably really don't want to hear my voice. But the Lord loves to hear that. He loves to hear our collective voices together. And so there's actually a little bit of debate um, as to some of the origin or intent of this psalm. But some scholars believe that this was actually written uh, to be sung around some of the feasts, maybe specifically the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And as worshipers were coming to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, this would have been a song that they potentially sung as a part of their pilgrimage. So they didn't sing when they got to the temple or in the temple. They were singing along the way. That's what, that's what was in their hearts as they were going to worship. They knew what was ahead of them. They knew what was in store. And out of this overflow, they were just singing. They were worshiping as they went along the way. And so can I ask you, as I've asked myself many times this last week, how do you come when you come to worship, when you come to church? Do you come singing? Is song, specifically song as a form of worship, is that a part of your life outside of here, Wednesdays from about 7 to 7.30? How about yesterday? Was song a part of your life? Specifically worshiping the Lord. I'm not talking about listening to music on the you know, radio on the way to work or school. I'm talking about worshiping the Lord through song. Is that part of your life? Because it should be. It should be. Have you led a life of worship between maybe last Sunday and now? See, if we live a life of worship in our everyday lives, that overflow is going to come out when we come here into this building, when we get together as God's people, when we get to sing praises to him. You should be excited to come and worship together with God's people. How many are excited to come together and worship with God's people? There we go. It's hands. See, there's no... Any, any audible excitement? There we go. Okay, audible excitement is great. That's what we're actually commanded to do, and we're going to get into that in just a little second. But can I say that if your life doesn't, doesn't exhibit a heart of worship, and maybe specifically song, I'm not saying you need to sing 24-7. I'm not saying, you know, at least one hour every day you need to be singing. That's not what I'm saying. But is worship and song a part of your life? Because if it's not, I would submit to you that it's going to be a little more difficult to worship here when you come together. And so verse 1 goes on to say in the second part, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us shout joyfully. Face value probably doesn't sound too dissimilar from come and let us sing, but the word here in the Hebrew is actually an interesting word, and it's the single word nerea. It's translated as shout joyfully. Now, this word is used in plenty of places throughout Scripture. The most notable to you will probably be out of Joshua chapter 6. You guys might be familiar with the story of the battle of Jericho. And God tells the Israelites that they're to march around this walled, you know, impenetrable fortress of a city of Jericho once a day for six days, right? And then on the seventh day, they're to march around seven times. And they're to follow seven priests who are carrying seven trumpets, and most of you guys know the story. When the trumpets blow, what are the people supposed to do? Shout. That's the same word, Nerea, as we see here in the Psalms. The same word. So imagine this, this scene at Jericho as the Israelites are marching around the city, right? No weapons, by the way, because God said, all I want you to do is shout and the walls are going to come down. They're probably thinking, yeah, right, I don't know. Probably a little bit of doubt. But I can tell you that as they marched around, I would assume that they're, they're looking around and thinking, man, if all we got is this shout, we're going to give it all we got, right? If that's your only option, you're going to give it all you've got. So I imagine this battle cry, right, as they, as they ring out, as they shout when the trumpets are blown. That's what's commanded of us here. Isn't that interesting? I don't think we normally think of that when we think of song. Sometimes we think maybe in, in the church of more traditional hymns and Think of things being more quiet and reserved, but that's clearly not the case here. It's not what the psalmist is telling us. It says, shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. 
This idea of God as our rock is seen again, of course, throughout Scripture. In Second uh, Samuel 22, David blesses God after he's been uh, delivered from the hand of Saul, and he cries out, he said, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. And earlier in this book, in Psalms, in Psalm 18, we actually hear David again speaking words uh, regarding the same time, but it's recorded here in the Psalms. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 19, the very next one, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, our God is solid. He's a rock. He's immovable. He's unchangeable. He will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one we are shouting to, and he is the reason for our shouts. And that's what we need to remember. Verse 2 says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. There's our word again. Let us shout joyfully to him. And let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. What does that look like to come before the Lord's presence with thanksgiving? I'll have you flip just a page or two over to Psalm 100. Uh, Pastor Shane took us through this psalm about six months ago or so. And as I was studying this psalm, it's remarkable the similarities. There's quite a few verses that are here. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are the sheep, excuse me, we are the people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to generations. The title of the psalm is actually, in many of your Bibles will say, a psalm for thanksgiving or a psalm of thanksgiving. And so we can come before the Lord with thanksgiving by singing psalms. That's what we're required to do or commanded to do, at least here. The reason I took you to Psalm 100, I want to point out how often these commands are given to us over and over and over. This similar wording that we see in 95 and 100 is found in Psalm 47, Psalm 66, 96, 98, and 101. The word singing, just that one word, is commanded at least 25 different times in the Psalms. And that's not where it might say to lift up your voice or to make a loud noise. That's just that word singing. That's an important type of worship. We must see that. And the idea of shouting joyfully to the Lord, that word, naria, right? This, this loud shout, this cry out to the Lord is found at least 10 times. I will point out that it's, in the Hebrew language, without going too in-depth, it's actually not quite a command, but there's a, a verb tense called the cohortative, and the cohortative is more of a, a, an earnest plea, right? So God's not commanding it as this authoritarian dictator sitting up in heaven, right, with a lightning bolt ready to strike down at you if you don't do what he says. That's not him. He'll let you not worship if that's what you would choose, but it's an earnest plea, it's an earnest plea to come before him, to worship with song. Now, again, remember that this is loud shouting, right? I know that there's some debate in the church at times over music, over style, over songs. I know that none of that happens here at Living Truth, of course, but I hear at some churches what I've heard some people complain that the music's too loud, if you can believe that. Some people even complain that there's like an electric guitar on the stage. Or drums, maybe, right? Drums, oh my gosh. Drums are in the Bible, by the way, actually. I'm sure Shane can tell you a lot more than I can on this, but it's called the timbrel, a percussion instrument. It's actually mentioned in Psalm 150. You know what it says to do right after it says to play the drum? It says to dance. How about that? Dancing. So there's a variety of ways that we worship, right? But when the Bible gives us instructions on how to do that, sometimes it's uncomfortable, right? Some of these things are uncomfortable because they maybe don't necessarily fit 
our preference or what we would like or what we would want. But if you haven't noticed, God really isn't in the business of making you feel comfortable. Amen? As I think about characters in the Bible, I can think about Abraham in the very beginning in Genesis, and God says, hey, I want you to leave home and go. You go, okay, where am I going to go? I'll show you later. Just go. That's probably pretty uncomfortable, right? How about Moses? We're going through Exodus right now on Sundays. And God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and says, I'm going to send you to save my people, to rescue them out of Egypt, out of their slavery and, and their bondage. And he's going, yeah, you go get them, God. He goes, no, I'm going to send you, me. No, I, I don't speak good. I can't, you can't send me. It's an uncomfortable position, right? Can I be honest with you and tell you standing right here isn't the most comfortable position for me? I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to come up and teach at a church. It's probably a small handful of you, but it's not exactly the most comfortable. I enjoy it, don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a great opportunity and a privilege. It really, really is. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But I've noticed that God can do great things when we dare to venture into the uncomfortable. Amen. When he calls us to do something and we're obedient in it, mm-hmm. he can do great things. And so as the Bible instructs us on all these different ways of worship, right, not just in these psalms, but, or in this psalm particularly, but throughout the psalms, there's different ways, right? Arms raised high, bowing low, dancing, jumping. 2 Samuel 6, David is bringing the ark into the temple, into Jerusalem, and you guys all know that story, right? And he's dancing, and he's whirling around. And it says that his wife, Michal, she despised him when, he, when she saw him dance. We don't have time to get into that passage, and I know there's a little bit more to it, but I want to point out the fact that there was someone watching someone else worship, and you know what they did? They despised that person because of the way they were worshiping. And so I will pose another question, and I will do so bluntly, but please understand that it comes with much grace um, because I've been in this situation before, right? Kind of a such were some of you. Uh, type of thing. I've been in this place before. And God has changed my perspective and God has changed my heart. But here's my question. Have you ever despised someone as you've watched them worship? Because maybe it's a different way than what you're used to. Maybe it's uncomfortable. And maybe despised is a little bit of a strong word. I get that. So we'll temper it back and we'll say, maybe being critical Have you ever been critical when you watch someone else worship? Have you ever stood there maybe with your arms crossed and music's going on, you look across the room and it's like, look at that guy over there with his arms raised high. Right? Guy's always so emotional, what a phony. Guys ever have those thoughts in your head? I hear laughing, so it must be true. I'll tell you that I used to be there. I used to be there. If that's you, can I just encourage you? At the end of the service, we're going to have another time of worship. We're going to close out. Can I encourage you to to focus on the Lord and maybe to, to try to not focus on those around you? I know that's a tough thing, and I know it's something that is really an area of growth in a lot of people's lives. But I say that because when I used to do that, I missed out. I missed out. And so I'm not saying this to beat you over the head. I hope you don't feel that way. Please understand that. But I'm saying that because I don't want you to miss out on an opportunity to worship in the way that God commands us to worship. I'll tell you that as a young child growing up, I didn't grow up in the church, and my only real experience with religion was in the Greek Orthodox Church. You guys ever been to a Greek Orthodox service? It's not as lively as you would uh, find here a little more routine or rote in the way that they do things. And the first time I went to an evangelical Christian church was right here in the city of Corona on the other side of town. And I walked into the church building and I thought, I got the wrong address. This is a rock concert. What in the heck's going on here? Right? There's loud music and there's lights and there's fog and haze and all this stuff. And People have their arms up and they're side to side and they're going all around. What in the heck is going on? But you know what I said in my heart? I'll confess to you that I thought, this isn't worship. These people don't know what they're doing. 
that's what I thought. I was critical. And I've since come to, to change that. The Lord has since come to change that in my life and in my heart. Let me say on the flip side of, you know, talking about the people, and I, I don't mean to say that just because you stand there with your arms crossed that you're not worshiping properly. Please, please don't get me wrong, but sometimes you might be uh, worshiping on, on the flip side, and you might be doing everything great, and you might look around and see someone that does have their arms crossed or their hands in their pockets, stoic, right? Maybe not even, not even moving their lips, let alone singing, right? Some people, some people kind of just mumble. You see that? And those people might be tempted to look down at you and say, oh, that person's not spiritual. They don't know how to worship the Lord if they were only like me, right? They might look down on you. Can I tell you that 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 person has no reason to look down on you? Tell you that they're probably even worse off than you in that position? Because they're distracted. They're not focused on the Lord. They're too busy focusing on you. And so again, over the years, I, I came to have a different change of heart. And I want to tell you one story. I've had the privilege to travel to many, many different countries on short-term mission trips. Um, Africa, Europe, Asia, uh, Latin America. And I've gotten the privilege to worship in many different churches with many different styles, many different methods, many different types of instruments, types of songs. I've heard sound systems that would give Shane nightmares, right? These little portable speakers. I mean, it's just some really interesting stuff. But you want to know what's interesting from all these different countries that I've been to? You'd think that they'd be so different, right? Africa. They might play drums more often, and they dance. Man, they get down when they worship, let me tell you. Europe, maybe, they, they tend to not have such a focus on instruments, but, but their voices. In Asia, they, they play these instruments that I can't even tell you what they're called, but it, it's beautiful to see that. But the one thing that they have in common is that they're all worshiping the same God. They're all worshiping the same God. And by and large, these people, they, they worship with reckless abandon. If any of you guys have had that opportunity to worship in another country, it's amazing. People, no matter their circumstances, in, in the poorest you know, worst parts of town, facing sickness and disease, they might not have had a meal for a day or two. They worship the Lord with such great passion. And I have to confess, it's much greater passion than I've seen in the American church. Much greater passion. I think, to use a, a phrase, that they would check their opinions at the door, right, when they walk into service. They're not concerned with any peripheral stuff. Because their focus isn't on themselves, their focus is on the Lord. In 2013, I was on a trip in the Philippines, and we went to a church, and I will use that term very loosely. This was a very small building, probably the size of our foyer out there. Cinder blocks, no foundation, dirt floor. I don't even know that they poured footings for the walls of the cinder blocks. Cutouts for doors and windows, but they hadn't had a chance to install them because they didn't have the money. To top it all off, there was no roof on the church. Well, that wouldn't be topping it off. But anyway, to not top it all off, there was no roof on the church. You know, we walked about three, four miles from our hotel to get to the church. Really hilly, dusty roads. And you guys ever been in humidity before? Florida, East Coast. If you ever been to the Philippines, take that and times it by 10, right? That's the Philippines. All that to say, it wasn't the easiest experience to get to church. And then when you show up, you're looking at whatever. There were chickens, by the way, that were just roaming through because there's no doors and there's no windows. That was our church service. And so the church service starts, and guess what happens? It starts pouring rain. So they stopped the church service. We all went home. No, they worshiped. They worshiped through the rain. And I have to wonder, if that was to happen here, what would we do? Would we worship if we didn't have a roof on this building and it started raining? Or would we go home because it's more comfortable? And again, I'm saying that to myself just as much as I'm saying it to you. I'll tell you, I was pretty uncomfortable there. I was pretty uncomfortable. I was far outside my comfort zone. But you know, the Spirit of God was alive and He moved. He inhabited the praises of His people in that church service. And that is one of the most memorable worship experiences that I've ever had, ever. 
And it wasn't just because of the circumstances, but it was because seeing the heart of people that didn't care about anything else that was going on. They were so focused on the Lord and they were following his command to worship him. They were being obedient as his followers. And a few days later, there was a massive earthquake, 7.2. Our hotel was fairly demolished. We couldn't stay in it anymore. Buildings, shops all around town destroyed. There was a 400-year-old church in town that was destroyed. It was just dust. And the following Sunday, we went back to that same little church that we went to visit. And of course, it had collapsed. And you know what the people did? They worshiped. With no building, they worshiped. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression. So I want to point out that the reason we're called to worship God is because of who he is, right? It's not about us. It's not about our mood. It's not about how we feel today or this month. And I know that we don't always feel like worshiping when we come in. I'm with you. Your worship leader is with you. He's confessed that from this very stage. You don't just wake up and all of a sudden feel like, it's just a great day to worship every day, 24-7. No, we're humans and we have struggles and we have trials. You might have gotten into a fight with your spouse or your kids on the way here and you don't feel like worshiping. But our emotions aren't the basis for our worship, right? Our basis for worship is who God is. And I've come in before in not that right mood. I've come in discouraged and down. But when you come in and you worship, God does something amazing. He takes the focus off of you and off of other things, and he's able to help redirect it. We can't do it on our own, right? We need his help to do that. But that's what he does. That clock is ticking faster and faster every time I come up here, I'm telling you. We're on to verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hand formed the dry land. This is the basis for our worship. It's who God is. As I was talking about, there's not clarity on the intent or the purpose of this psalm, Some believe that it was written, again, for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and a celebration. Others believe that it was actually written at the time when the Israelites came out of the Babylonian exile. And what they believe here is that, as this references, he's a great king above all gods. The Bible isn't saying that there are other gods, of course, right? But it's acknowledging that men create other gods and men worship other gods. And that's what happened in all these areas that surrounded Israel, all these other people groups. They all worship different gods. And of course, in Babylon was the same thing. Probably the, the Greek gods are ones that we can more think of, you know, right, and, and know how this works. There's, you know, Zeus, and he resides atop of Mount Olympus. And there's Poseidon, who's the god of the sea, and he lives down in the depths of the sea. And there's Hades, the god of the underworld. But what this is saying is there's not just one god for this and this and this. There is just one god, period. And he's not just the Lord over all those things. He is the creator of all those things. In his hands, right, are the depths of the earth. The sea is his. It was he who made it. He formed the dry land with his hands. Actually, with just a a word of his mouth, he spoke everything into creation, into existence. And that is why we're commanded to worship. God himself is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And if he's the creator, it means that he's a creator. If he's the creator of all things, it means he's the creator of worship, right? So what does that mean? He gets to dictate how it's done. He gets to give the prescription. And he does so throughout the entire book of Psalms. And again, we see that specifically here. And so we're going to take a look at the second model of worship now. And that's prayer. And specifically, we're going to look at the posture of prayer. Verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Come, let us worship. Again, I want us to take this idea out of our minds that that, before I came up here, was worship, and and that's it. That's not the case. The Hebrew word here is shaha, and it means to bow down or to prostrate oneself on the ground, face down, right? And it's used of bowing before a monarch or a superior or a lord when they would maybe enter into the the room or when they'd enter into your presence, you would bow down to show reverence and to show submission. But it was also used as a posture of prayer specifically in the temple, in temple worship. 
And so we can think today of Muslim prayer. You guys are probably familiar with seeing how they will line up and they will bow down. They'll get down on their knees and over and over they'll repetitively get up and, and down and they'll lay almost completely flat on the ground with their hands and their face. They'll even touch their forehead to the floor each time they kneel and pray. And that form of prayer was most likely borrowed from the Jewish people. Islam was about the 7th century when it, when it came into being. And they believed that it was actually taken from the Jewish form of worship. And then since that time, the Jews actually got away from that form of worship because they didn't want any confusion there. The next that we see is bow down. This is another separate posture, similar but separate, and it is distinct. All three of these are distinct. This is a Hebrew word, harah, and it means to bend the knee or to bring down, to couch, to kneel, to sink, or to stoop. And it refers to bowing of the knees in submission or subjugation to someone or something. In this case, it's God. But it's more of a backwards move, if you can picture this, okay? So it's not a, a forward, I'm going to kneel in reverence. And has this idea that you're under the weight of something. People could actually go down if they're under a, a physical heavy weight or a load. Or sometimes uh, falling back in a form of surrender. And so it's this, this other form of, of worship it's another form of our posture and how we come before the Lord. And so we have the attitude of prostrating down where it's this conscious act that we're bowing before the Lord. We're giving him reverence and honor for who he is. And then we also have what I would suggest is perhaps falling back under this weight, realizing who God is, knowing that you're coming before the presence of a holy God, realizing who you are in comparison to him, realizing his power, his might, his holiness. And so we, we just drop down almost involuntarily. And the last word we see is, let us kneel. And this is a Hebrew word, barak. Like, I guess our past president, right? Barak. And it means to kneel, but it's more in the form of a blessing. It's given to really show honor. And it's used of men blessing other men in the Bible. You would show down, you would bow down, you would show honor or reverence to them. It's also used of men, of course, bowing down to God. But interestingly enough, it's actually even used of God blessing men. And we see that in Genesis 12 when God blesses Abraham and he, he gives him the covenant. And he says that God blessed Abraham. And I will tell you that I don't understand how this works. I can't imagine a God getting down on his knee, our God, to a man, but it's interesting nonetheless to see that God actually blesses us. Does God bless us? Amen? Amen? Right? Oh, how he blesses us in so many ways. This is talking a physical posture, yes, but the deeper meaning here is really the posture of our hearts. See, we have a God that blessed us so incredibly much that will outbless us forever that sent his son to die for us, right? On a cross, to bear our guilt, our shame, for our sin, though he didn't deserve it. He sent his son for us to die for us, to rise again. How could we not fall to our knees and bless that God who has loved us so much? How could we not bow down in reverence and in honor, in submission to the God that loves you and I beyond measure? And this type of blessing is, of course, a form of prayer. We, we pray as we bless the Lord with thanksgiving for all that he's done for us, right? Can I ask, when you pray, do you ever get down on your knees? I would hope that many of you do that, but I would also imagine that in a room full of people like this, there's some of you that have never done that. Can I encourage you to do that? It will open up a whole new uh, method and window of prayer for you that you couldn't imagine. As you humble yourself before the Lord, as you take that posture, as you kneel down, as you bow down before him, I tell you simply that you won't regret it. And so how do we do this? And how does this apply to us today, right? These forms of posture, these, these forms of prayer. 
as an act of worship. We know that during this time it was common, right, to, to bow down to these lords or monarchs or, or kings, but we don't have that today. That's not common in our culture, so we wouldn't necessarily be bowing down in that same way. It doesn't mean we shouldn't, by the way, but it's just not quite the same culturally, right? But I would say as we look at the posture of our hearts and how we come into God's presence, whether it's at home or in the car as you're worshiping, as you're praying, or whether it's as you come in here to this building on a Wednesday or on a Sunday, how do you come before him? Do you show that reverence, that respect, that gratitude that he deserves for being a holy God? Do you prepare yourself on the way here? As you enter the service, do you do so with joy? Do you do so ready to sing praises? This you know, reverence, by the way, doesn't have one particular look. I'm not saying there's a formula that you need to do it this way or that way, and that's what's acceptable to God. No. How many different denominations do we have in Christianity? And all have a little bit different form, right? I don't know that God looks down on those and says, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. He delights when his people worship him, no matter what it is. But I do think that our Western evangelical church has maybe lost a little bit of that reference. Would you agree? We know that God is our friend, yes, and he is, and we can have that casual conversation, that relationship with him. We can commune with him, talk to him. But at the same time, he's a holy God. He is a creator of the heavens and the earth. He is a sustainer of all things. I think that we need to, as, as the church, right, and I'm speaking to myself again, we need to maybe look at how we, we show that honor and that reverence to the Lord. We maybe are a little casual in the way we come and approach him. Maybe we come late to church. I'm not talking about you get stuck in traffic, you know, and you can't make it here and there. I'm talking about as a habit. I'm talking about being outside and it's the, the worship music is going on in here and we're singing. And again, I've been there and I know there's people that stay outside and they'll, they'll decide to come in when that time of music's over. And I would say that I don't believe that's showing God the proper honor and respect and reverence that he deserves. Verse 7, the, the bridge of this song, if you will, says, let us kneel before the Lord, or excuse me, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You guys know that the Bible is just filled with this sheep and shepherd imagery all throughout. I don't need to explain to you that sheep are dumb animals. You guys have heard that before. Um, it's interesting that God tends to use this metaphor over and over and over again, and there's clearly a purpose for it. But I love that it says in the very beginning of this verse, for he is our God. So he's not just a God, as it talked about in verses three to five. He's not some mythical being that lives up in the clouds. He is our God. He is with us. Emmanuel, right? God with us. He is a personable, knowable, relatable God. And more than that, he's our great shepherd who cares for us. He cares for his sheep. Some of your Bibles may note an alternate uh, translation uh, where it says the people of his pastor. It actually can say the people of his pastoring. And I'll submit to you that there's just a few letters there that don't seem to make a big difference, but as far as the implication goes, there's actually a really big difference, right? We can be the people of a pasture, a physical area of grass with a pen. But if there's no shepherd, and sheep are dumb creatures, we are, <laughs> that sheep's not going to thrive. A sheep's well-being depends on the shepherd and depends on having a good shepherd. Because without a good shepherd, that sheep's not going to find proper grazing land, clean, fresh water. They're not going to be protected from disease, from animals, from whatever else would come in to try to destroy them. And so what a great thing that he is our great shepherd. He is pasturing us actively. We don't just get to be in the pasture. He is pasturing. He's watching over us. He's caring for us. He's guiding us. And it's a great privilege we have, right? To be the people of his pasturing. But with great privilege comes what? Great responsibility. What's the responsibility of the sheep? The responsibility of the sheep is to listen to the voice of the shepherd, right? 
the most common way that a shepherd would get sheep to follow them in ancient Israel and even in some places still today in rural areas in Israel. Shepherds don't have a lot of modern technology, right? Today, shepherds have border collies and whistles. And You know, I read a story that in New Zealand, there are shepherds that use drones to herd their sheep. They can actually play the sound of dogs barking over a speaker and they can corral the sheep with drones, right? I'm sure David would have loved to have that. But shepherds had their voice. That was the way. I've seen it. I've seen it in Israel where you've got these two herds of sheep coming together and they, they mix like this. And you think it's a big sheep mess. How are they ever going to sort out who's who, right? They're not tagged or anything. And you'd, you'd have maybe two flocks coming together, intersecting on the same street. Then as the shepherds pass and they keep going their respective ways, they call out. And guess what? Just like magic, those sheep just separate and they all go the right way. They follow their shepherd. They know his voice. Jesus, of course, tells us that. In John 10, we have that parable. And in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What a great thing. But it's a responsibility that we have. We have that choice. We have the freedom to choose. Do we want to follow or do we not want to follow? Verse 8, back in Psalm 95, says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. And these verses here, beginning with 8 through 11, are quoted in Hebrews 3. We'll flip to there in a moment. Um, it's actually one of the, believed to be one of the largest um, New Testament references and quotations of an Old Testament uh, scripture. And that's what we have here. But we're going to look at 8 and 9 where it says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah in the day of Massa." And this story is out of Exodus 17, if you guys would turn there with me. We'll make it quick. And so in chapter 14, uh, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They had just um, experienced the plagues and the Israelites had seen that. And in 14, they, they go through the Red Sea. It's parted, yet another miracle. They come out to the wilderness and they come to a place where there's no water. There's bitter water. And the people cry out to Moses, what have you done? You brought us out here to die, right? You guys have heard this. And God performs a miracle and he turns the water into sweet water. Then we have Exodus 15 and Moses sings this song back to the, the, the Lord. And then in 16, guess what? They get hungry and there's no food. And what do they do? They complain again. And what does God provide for them? Manna. What is it? Manna. Yet another miracle that they had just seen. And we'll pick it up in Exodus 17, verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? For the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Skip ahead to verse 7. He named the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, quarrel because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? All these miracles they had just witnessed, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And what did they do? They didn't believe. They didn't believe that God would provide for them. They didn't believe that God would care for them. We can look back today and say, these stubborn Israelites, right? How did they not know that? But we have the benefit of looking thousands of years retroactively, right? We see what happened and what ultimately happened and what God did. But don't we do the same thing? How many of us know that God's going to provide for us? How many know that God will perform a miracle in our lives? Why? Because he's done it in the past. But we get into a sticky situation and what happens? We doubt. We don't believe. And sometimes we're even disobedient. We'll go back to Psalm 95 and look at the last two verses. It says, For 40 years I loathed that generation 
and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. It says that God loathed that generation. What a strong word, right? A very strong word. It says there were people that erred in their heart. It was continually. It wasn't just their actions. It wasn't just their outward actions, but it was in their heart. It was what was on the inside. They didn't just not follow the right prescription for worship. They didn't just, you know, not check the box. Oh, I, I went to church this week and I read my Bible. It's not like they missed one of those check boxes. They continually erred in their heart. And this wasn't just a one-time thing, right? God doesn't give you one chance and then you're out. That's not it. God is the God of an infinite amount of chances. But verse 11 tells us that God swore in his anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. See, these people never entered the promised land. They never got to see the promise fulfilled. Those 40 and over were uh, laid in the wilderness, right? Let's turn to Hebrews 3, towards the back of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And this is the quotation of Psalm 95, where it says, Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Skip down to verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but those who are disobedient. We know that unbelief was a problem with the Israelites, but here it's a little more specific. Those who were disobedient. And thus we come to our third form of worship. And it's really the flip side of disobedience, which is obedience. We could assume that if the Israelites didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief and disobedience, that through belief and obedience, they would have entered the promised land, correct? Obedience is what we are called to here. See, the Israelites had these various forms of worship that we talked about. They were commanded to sing. They were commanded to pray, bow down, and do all of these different things. And they did that. Um, we know through the, the major and minor prophets, through a lot of those books, there's talks about temple worship and that the Israelites uh, uh, did that all throughout uh, their generations. But specifically uh, in through the rest of Exodus and through Deuteronomy, these Israelites in the wilderness had the tabernacle, right? So the, the temple wasn't existed, hadn't existed yet, but they had the tabernacle. They had forms of worship prescribed to them. And we could say that they did that. They did those things, those outward things. But on the inside, they erred in their heart and they were disobedient. They didn't believe the promises of God. And so how do we keep this from happening to ourselves? If we go back to verses 12 and 13 there in Hebrews 3, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we skip ahead to Hebrews 4 verse 2, it says, for indeed we have had the good news preached to us speaking at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, just as they also, referring to the Israelites, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It had to be united by faith. Faith is a necessary component to that, right? Faith requires an action. It's belief plus obedience. You can believe something, but if you don't walk it out, if you don't have that trust and you don't obey, we could argue that that's not faith. There's a story of a man named Charles Blondin. He was a, an acrobat and a tightrope walker. 
in the 1800s. He was famous for crossing the uh, Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And one day he was walking across and he was pulling a wheelbarrow. Yes, they said pulling. He was actually walking backwards across the tightrope, back and forth, multiple times. And as he came to a, a stop on one of the sides, a crowd had gathered, of course, to watch what was going on. And he said, how many of you believe that I can carry a man in this wheelbarrow and walk across the tightrope? What do you think they said? Oh, yeah, I believe, I believe. We believe you can do it. And he looks back at the crowd and he says, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? Guess what? No one got in the wheelbarrow. Actually, about 15 years later, he had a manager that used to book all of his things and he got in the wheelbarrow and he performed that feat over Niagara Falls. But the point is, a lot of times we say we believe, but we don't take the step and we don't obey. Because why? It's scary. It's difficult. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to do it. But that's not what we're called to, right? So can I exhort you tonight not to be like the Israelites that missed out because they were disobedient? Not to be like these onlookers at the falls? Got scared? Who knows if they were all Christians anyway? I would assume not. James 1.22 tells us, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who what? Who delude themselves. They're missing out. They think they got it, but they're missing out. And we know that in Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And I picture the heart of Jesus as he gives that command. Again, it's not this uh, dictator, you know, yelling out, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? But I believe it's this heartfelt appeal. Why? Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Church, let us not be like that. Let these verses not be true of us. I pray that through God's grace and his spirit and his ability that we can learn to be more obedient followers. I know it's not easy. I'm right there with you. Shane was up here and he said in the back, I'm going to be sitting and listening and trying to grow just like you guys. And I'm, just because I'm standing here giving you this message tonight doesn't mean I'm any different than you. I'm going through this the same way. Learning to be obedient learning to worship the Lord in a variety of ways, to bow down, to show honor and reverence, to sing like I never have before. And again, it's uncomfortable for me. And so as we close tonight, Shane's going to lead us. He was going to lead us in a little bit longer time of worship. He did go a little long in the beginning, and I went, I don't even know how long, but I'm Lebanese, and if there's one thing Lebanese people can do, it's talk, right? I can talk about nothing up here for 45 minutes. So, But as we close, Shane's going to lead us in a time of worship. And I'm hoping it's going to be a little more extended. Can I encourage you, church, not to leave? Can I encourage you to stay? Maybe don't even look at the clock. Don't have a distraction. I understand that that's maybe not the case for every single one of you. But can I encourage you to maybe try to worship in a new way that you've never done before? Can I encourage you to maybe pour your heart into a little bit more, no matter where you're at on that worship spectrum. If this is your first day walking into a church, you probably have no clue what's going on. And if you've been a believer for 70 years, you should be a seasoned worshiper. But I pray that you would learn to grow more and more every day in that, because that's what the Lord wants of us. And I pray that it wouldn't just be tonight, but that after this, that next Wednesday when you come back, and next Sunday, and tomorrow when you're at home or on your way to work, or the next day when you're at home with your family. Maybe you could sing. Maybe you could bow down together. You could pray with your husband or your wife. Do something different. Take that little step. Be obedient to whatever the Lord's called you. If you've never done that before, whatever that is for you guys, be obedient. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, thank you for tonight and for this opportunity that we have to study your word in a church that has a floor and walls and windows and a roof where we don't have to worry about rain coming down on us. Lord, your word is um, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your psalms are medicine for our soul, we know. 
but they're also beautiful songs, beautiful psalms. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I pray that your spirit, Lord, would just inhabit the praises of your people tonight in this room, Lord. I pray that we'd get to hear worship right now, tonight, after this service, like we never have before on a Wednesday night, God. I pray that that worship would just delight you, that it would be sweet music to your ears, God. And I thank you that you are our great shepherd, that you actively pastor us and lead us and guide us and protect us and watch over us. Thank you, Lord. And if you're not sure if you're a sheep in that pasture, I pray that you would want to be one of those sheep, Lord. It's, it's as simple as crying out to the Lord and saying, I want to be yours. And then following his voice and listening to it, Lord. And so if that's you, Lord, I, I would just ask that you would come up after the service, that you talk to one of us. There's going to be pastors. There's going to be leaders up here. We're going to be here to pray with you for anything, whatever it would be. Lord, but as we enter into this time of worship together, Lord, I just pray that you would bless it in a mighty and powerful way that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.